Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, and I'll read verses 29 through 35. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. In our most recent sermons, we have been looking at Jesus, and we have been looking at him where he is this very hour, exalted in glory at the right hand of God, the Heavenly Father. The Bible has much to say about him in that place of glory. He came into the world, he became a man, he was God and man. And he lived a perfect life of righteousness. He fulfilled all of his father's commandments. But then he was put to death upon a cross. And his death upon the cross was not a terrible tragedy of providence. It was part of God's eternal plan to save sinners. He was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he was ascended back up into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. John tells us in Revelation chapter 5 that all of heaven worships him. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this is where Jesus is this very hour as we sit here this morning. He is exalted into the very highest place of heaven upon the throne of of God with power, riches, and blessing. We have been studying him, but we have not been looking specifically at the glory and the honor that belongs to him. We have been looking at the heart of Christ as he sits upon that throne in heaven. What is the heart of Jesus? What is the very heart of Jesus 
still toward us now as we are his disciples here below. And we have found from various passages and from different arguments that his heart of love, affection, and compassion for us remains the same as it has ever been. His exaltation, his glory, has in no way lessened or diminished his great mercy, his kindness, and his love toward us. We have been looking at the humanity of Jesus in our recent sermons, that he is our great high priest, and he is a man who is on the throne of God in heaven. He is God, and he is man as well, but the Bible encourages us to consider him in his humanity, that he is the man, Christ Jesus, the mediator. There is one God, Paul says, and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And then the book of Hebrews tells us of him being our great high priest, but the book of Hebrews has much to say about his humanity as well. He has been made like his brethren in all things, He has been tempted in all things as we are in his humanity. And so we are to look at him in his humanity as our great high priest. And in regard to his humanity, in our recent sermons, we have been considering the influence of the three persons of the Trinity on his humanity to make him the high priest that he is in all of his love, compassion, and his sympathy for us in all of our weaknesses. We've seen the first two persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, in their influence upon him. And now this morning, today, we consider the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in his influence upon the humanity of Jesus to make him a loving, compassionate, and sympathizing high priest. There are two parts to this study. There is the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus here on earth. And then there is the work of the Holy Spirit to continue in heaven, which continues in heaven to give him continuing those graces that he received here on earth. Today, we consider the first of them, the Holy Spirit in his work in Jesus here on earth. Now, there are many aspects to the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, in his humanity here on earth. We are looking specifically at the humanity of Jesus in regard to him being our great high priest and our mediator, full of the love and compassion of God for sinners. The first thing we consider this morning is the holiness of Jesus in his incarnation by the Holy Spirit. The holiness of Jesus in his incarnation by the Holy Spirit. This is what Luke is telling us here in this passage. The angel Gabriel came to the virgin named Mary And the angel told her that she would conceive a son in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. And then the angel tells her of his greatness that will surpass 
and excel all others in verses 32 and 33. Mary believed what the angel said, but Mary was perplexed. And she said in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? And then the angel answered and said to her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The angel Gabriel told Mary here, perhaps the deepest and the most wonderful of all mysteries and the greatest of all miracles that she would conceive in her womb a son without a human father while she was still a virgin, something which had never taken place before and would never take place again afterward, a new and supernatural work of God and the son who would be born from her would be the Son of God in human flesh. There are three phrases there in verse 35 which the angel speaks to her. The first is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will envelop you, in other words. He will not operate at a distance, but he will come upon you in this work of conception. The second phrase explains further the first and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Mary, he will bring the power of the Most High God upon you. The power of omnipotence, the highest power in all of the universe, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The words overshadow you are reminiscent of a bird that hovers over its young and brings them to life. And the words point us back to the work of the Holy Spirit back in Genesis chapter 1 when the earth was formless and void and we read that the Spirit of God was moving over the waters of the deep, hovering, overshadowing them. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the first creation came into being in the heavens and in the earth. But here we have a far greater creation, a new creation in which the Son of God will come down from heaven as the Savior and the Holy Spirit will overshadow the womb of Mary to unite the Son of God to a human nature. The word overshadow here is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the glory cloud which hovered over the tent of meeting. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, we read that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. There's the same word. The cloud was hovering over the tabernacle. The cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, the cloud would hover over the tabernacle and lead the people in all of their wilderness wanderings. We read in Psalm 90 and verse 4 of God's protection over his people. 
He will hover, he will cover you with his pinions. He will hover over you and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And so here this same overshadowing, this hovering of the presence, the power, the protection of God will now come upon Mary. And then the third phrase is at the end of verse 35. For that reason, because of the divine creative power of the Holy Spirit, for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God, the divine name of the second person of the Trinity, who has been in heaven. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This is not the creation of a new person, because the person is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, but this is the union now of the eternal Son with a human nature. Jesus now will be the God-man, God and man united together, truly, fully God, truly, fully man, in the two natures, in an indissolvable union forever in time and into eternity, the God-man is now found in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only did the Holy Spirit unite the Son of God to a human nature, but he also sanctified that human nature to keep that human nature from all of the defilement and the pollution of sin, so that when he came into the world, at the end of verse 35, he is the holy offspring, a holy and perfect child, free from any stain or corruption of human sin. The New King James translates it, the Holy One. That's how he enters the world. He is the Holy One. The ESV reads, the child will be born and will be called holy, the son of God. So the child is preserved from all defilement and all corruption of human sin. This is the great purpose of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the womb of Mary to bring, to bring the Son of God into the world, unite him to a human nature, and then preserve him from all corruption of human sin. There are really three miracles that take place here by the Holy Spirit. The first is the conception in the womb of a virgin. Without any human father, without any human means. Something that had never taken place before or ever would since, a sovereign supernatural work of God, a conception in a womb of a virgin. The second miracle is that the child who is conceived in Mary was not just any ordinary child. The conception of any child in this way, the conception of any child in this way would have been a great miracle. But this is not the conception of any child. This is the union of the Son of God with the human nature in the womb of Mary. God becomes man and the Holy Spirit unites the divine and human together 
in the one person of Christ. The conception is spoken of there in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And then the agent of that conception is the Holy Spirit as spoken of down in verse 35. This is what the angel said to Joseph in the dream in Matthew 8, 1 and verse 18, that which you have, which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But then the third miraculous work of the Holy Spirit here is that he will sanctify the human nature of Jesus and preserve him in perfect holiness and keep him from every stain of human sin and bring him into the world as the holy offspring. We ask the question, why was this work of the Holy Spirit necessary? And the answer brings us back to the very beginning of the human race. In Adam, our first father, Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden. We were all in union with Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in union with Adam. So that the guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed, imputed to the entire human race. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He means all sinned in union with Adam. His guilt was imputed to the entire human race. And because of our guilt in Adam's sin, we share the corruption of his nature so that sin, like a disease, has been passed on down through the entire human race so that we are all born in sin with a nature that is inclined toward every kind of evil thing. It is called original sin. It is what David said in Psalm 51 in verse 5. It is true of every one of us. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What God saw in Genesis chapter 6 is still true, is still true of the entire human race, that all men have corrupted their way upon the earth. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that every child born into this world is born under the power and the corruption of sin. If we are to be saved, if anyone is to be saved, if there is to be a way of salvation, then we must have one who can go before us as our Savior, our High Priest, and represent us in the presence of God. 
one who is holy himself, one who is acceptable to God the Father in heaven. He must be one who shares the same nature as those whom he came to save. He must pay the penalty of our sin. He must be holy. He must be acceptable to God in heaven. The holiness, the holiness of the high priest and the holiness of his sacrifice for sin must be equal to the holiness of God the Father himself. No unclean thing can ever enter into his presence, and he can have no dealings with anyone who is in any way, even the least possible way, defiled by any sin. How could there be any way of salvation? We may imagine for a moment in our minds the great dilemma. In the eternal council of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as they came together and they knew that the human race would fall into sin and the entire human race would be under the judgment and the wrath of God for their sins. But the Father said, the Father said, I have great love for sinners. I do not desire the death of all men. I will make a way of salvation for them. But where, where is there a man who can stand before me and represent that human race that has fallen and offer a sacrifice that will take away all of their sins? Where is there a man of holiness who can stand in my presence? And then the Son of God said, My Father, I have great love. I have great love for sinners as well. I will go. I will go into the world and I will become a man. And I will be like my brethren in all things. I will represent them. And I will give myself in the death of a cross and a sacrifice with the penalty of their sins upon me. And I will take away all of their sins. I am willing to do this, my father and I will go into the world. And the father said to the son, my son, I will send you into the world and you will become a man. But here is where the great dilemma arose because the father said, how can you be a man born of a woman without any sin that you might be that holy and pure sacrifice? Every child, every man born into the world is stained with sin. How can you enter into that human race and become a man when every man is corrupted by birth and ruined by sin? We know what Job said in Job chapter 14 and verse 4. He said, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Job chapter 15 and verse 4, he said, What is man that he should be born pure? Or who is he who is born of a woman that he should be born righteous? So here we have this great dilemma in the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son. How could the Son of God enter the world and be pure and holy? and accomplish the great salvation. We are speaking here of our Lord Jesus. We are speaking of the Son of God, who Isaiah saw 
in Isaiah chapter 6. He was high and exalted upon his throne where he had been from all eternity and the seraphim about his throne called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. How can, how can the Holy One come down into the world and become a man? If he were to assume our human nature with everything that Adam has given to us, then he, would, he could never assume a human nature corrupted by sin which would defile his eternal holiness and glory. How can it ever take place? But then the Holy Spirit said, I will do the great work and I will conceive the Son of God in the womb of a virgin I will hover over her, overshadow her. I will preserve and keep the Son of God pure and holy and undefiled from all stains of human sin. I will bring him into the world as the holy offspring so that he may do the great work of salvation. So here is what the angel announces to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The great mystery of the incarnation, the perfect holiness of the Son of God is preserved. And he is born the holy offspring. God is announcing here a new creation. He is bringing into the world the head of a new humanity, a new race, Jesus. The first Adam, he fell. The entire human race was ruined. And they will all perish in union with Adam. But now we have the last Adam, and he has now come to accomplish salvation. When God made the first Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him a living soul. But now he brings the last Adam, Jesus, into the world. And he does not form him from the dust of the ground, but from the human nature which comes from the flesh and blood of his mother Mary. And she will carry him in her womb. The Holy Spirit will conceive him in the womb of Mary, unite the Son of God to the human nature, and she will carry him throughout the entire time of pregnancy because he must be made like his brethren in all things including the time of pregnancy in his mother's womb, that time of development and progress until the time of birth. And then he will be brought into the world, the holy offspring. It is not that the sinful nature comes from the father and not from the mother. And it is not that Mary was unique among all 
women, that she herself was holy. And so we have what the Roman Catholic Church calls the Immaculate Conception. Mary was as much a sinner as any other person in this world. And human sin is passed on from mother and father together. By the conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, Jesus is born outside of Adam's race, Adam's fallen race. He is the head of a new race. The guilt of Adam's sin cannot be imputed to him. He is free from Adam's guilt, and by the Holy Spirit's preservation, he is unstained by any of the corruption of original sin. And so he becomes the Holy One in this world, the only holy child ever born. And he is able now to enter into the presence of God. He is able to accomplish all that God desires for sinners and to be our holy high priest who can take away all of our sins. This is where the holiness of the life of Jesus began, in the womb, in the conception, in Mary's womb. So that now holiness follows him throughout all of his life. Every word, every deed that he spoke is perfect in the sight of God. The apostles all testify with one voice that in him there was no sin. Jesus himself said, I always do my Father's commandments and the things that are pleasing in his sight. At his trial, Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And even the demons knew of his perfect holiness and they called him the Holy One of God. This is where it all began in the incarnation of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Before we leave the passage, three short applications we'll make from this. And the first is that what we see here is the necessity of this incarnation of the Son of God, the necessity of this holy incarnation of the Son of God. The doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God and the preservation of his holiness is central, it is necessary, it is essential to our entire salvation. Without a perfect and holy Savior who can enter into the presence of God for us and accomplish everything that is needed, there would be no salvation for us. Without the holy offspring, there is no way of salvation. The necessity of this holy incarnation a second thing we can say here is that we must believe what we cannot understand. We must believe what we cannot understand. Here we have the greatest, perhaps, of all mysteries. The most wonderful miracle there could ever be. And we can never penetrate, comprehend, or understand it. We cannot even understand natural birth in a mother's womb and how it takes place. Men can tell us what takes place, 
but they can never tell us why it takes place. They can tell us this and that come together and then so many months later we have this and we have that, but no one knows how it takes place and no one ever will, even in a natural conception. But here we have the supernatural conception and the development of the Son of God. God is pleased to tell us everything we need to know for our salvation. But there are mysteries and there are secrets that belong only to him. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed to us belong to the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when the infinite and glorious God does works that our finite, small, and weak minds cannot comprehend. We should never be surprised to find such things in the Bible. And there are so many of them in our salvation the atonement of Jesus on a cross. How does the death of one man take away all of our sin who believe? Eternal election, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the resurrection, the world that is to come, there are so many things that are beyond our understanding and comprehension. Faith must receive what we cannot understand. And that's what we have taking place here and in so many other ways in our salvation. A third thing we can say is that we must wonder and worship the great love of God for sinners such as us. John said in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what love the Father has bestowed upon us. And here we have this most astonishing thing that God would devise this most amazing way, this wondrous way of salvation. All three persons of the Trinity involved in it. The Father sending his Son. The Son being willing to come and die for sinners and the Holy Spirit in this supernatural miracle conceives and preserves the holiness of the Son of God and unites him to the human nature. What love and compassion there must be in all three persons of the Trinity to devise such a plan as this. Who could ever have conceived such a wondrous work of God. Here is infinite wisdom. Here is unfathomable pity and compassion that the three persons of the Trinity would come together in their deliberations and in their counsels to decide that there would be a way of salvation. And then they would bring about such an astonishing work of God. What pity, what mercy there is for us that they would create a way of salvation. We can say with Mary, how can it be? How can this be that the great God would do such a thing for lost and ruined sinners such as us?
all we can do is wonder and worship over the great love of God for us. But as important as the holiness of Jesus is in his incarnation, we could ask the question, is this holiness from birth all that was necessary to accomplish the great work of our salvation? The answer to that question is found in our second point, which we only begin to look at this morning, which is the anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. We'll turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'll read verses 29 down through verse 34. The next day he saw, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he may be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. What John records here is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And we can say this because all four Gospels record the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism as a dove, as what John writes here in verse 32. The other three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove at his baptism. John does not mention his baptism directly here, but he is baptizing in the Jordan River himself. Matthew tells us in Matthew 3 and verse 16, that after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. The baptism of Jesus was his anointing by the Father with the Holy Spirit. The idea of anointing comes from the Old Testament in which the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were anointed with oil. And the anointing with oil symbolized that they were being set apart for their office, and it also symbolized that they were being divinely enabled for their work. And the, holy, the, the Old Testament anointings, they all pointed ahead to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. 
And this is what took place at his baptism. He was being anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit. He was being identified, set apart to be the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit came upon him with heightened and greater measures of power and grace to equip him, to enable him for the work that was before him. We see in verse 32, John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. The Spirit remained upon him, continued permanently now upon Jesus. And in John 3 and verse 34, he says, without measure, the Spirit was given to him without measure. The Holy Spirit now abiding upon Jesus and never to leave him. And so now his entire ministry is guided, conducted under the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Now we remind ourselves here that we are speaking of the humanity of Jesus, the human nature. This was the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the human nature of Jesus. His divine nature had no need of any such anointing. His divine nature had all of the divine attributes. His human nature was like ours in all things, yet without sin, in our frailties, in our weaknesses, and our limitations. And the Holy Spirit anoints the human nature of Jesus that he might endure and persevere through all his trials and accomplish everything for our salvation. Power and grace did not come from his divine nature into his human nature. That would have violated the true humanity of Jesus. He was made like us in all things, with all of our weaknesses, without sin. And so the Holy Spirit here now is commissioning him and consecrating him to the great task, equipping him, qualifying him. And there had to be this anointing of the Holy Spirit if he was to endure the conflict and suffering that lie ahead of him. Sinclair Ferguson writes on this, that in the frailty of human flesh, he stands in need of fresh and greater endowments of the Holy Spirit in order that through death, resurrection, and ascension, he may become the one who enters into such unmeasured possession of the Spirit that he himself will be able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we are asking the question, how did the Holy Spirit work in the human nature of Jesus to make him compassionate, loving, and sympathizing high priest for us? That's the question that we have been trying to answer. First, by the holiness of his human nature in the womb of Mary. Second, now, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love who has all the love of the Father and the Son. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Love is produced in the hearts of men only by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit now anoints 
the humanity of Jesus, so that now in his human nature, he is full of the love, kindness, compassion of God for us as sinners. This is what he needs to be our savior and our great high priest. He needs to be able from his humanity to have a heart that is full of love, compassion, sympathy as our great high priest. And in his baptism, he now receives the Holy Spirit without measure so that he could be the sympathizing high priest of lost and ruined sinners like ourselves. We only touch on this this morning. We'll look more at this tonight. But we close our time this morning by saying this, that everything that you have heard this morning is of a divine Savior for sinful men and women. The eternal Son of God has come down from heaven in a supernatural and miraculous conception. And he has been born into the world as the holy offspring. He is like us in our humanity. But he is unlike us in that he has no sin. And he is perfectly holy in every possible way. And now by his baptism, he is fully empowered, divinely enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit without any limitations or measures to accomplish everything that is needed to save sinners. There can never be, there can never be another person more divinely qualified and equipped from heaven, more enabled and empowered to be the savior of sinners than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect and all-sufficient Savior, and there is no one else who will ever be like him. Perfect in holiness, filled with divine power to be the Savior. And he says to everyone who hears his gospel, he says, look unto me. He says, turn to me. For I am God and be saved, he says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only savior of sinners. This is what he's doing in everything that we have seen this morning. He is coming to save sinners. He has only one purpose. To forgive, to cleanse, and to bring us back to God. And he invites all who hear his word to come to him. Let's pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, Lord Jesus, thank you for your glorious entrance into this world. Thank you that you have come down from heaven to be the savior of sinners. And thank you for your perfect holiness. We pray that you would receive worship and honor and praise from all of our hearts. We pray that you would have mercy upon any who do not know you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we look to you now and ask your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.